What a joy it is to be with you this morning. I've been looking forward to this opportunity for a number of weeks. Have some connections with this church going way back to the 1990s when Roy Blackwood was your pastor. And I was a part of the Institute in Basic Life Principles. I was an overhead operator, and that was my first introduction to Roy and this wonderful church. So it's so good to be back with you. I'm grateful for Jerry and Monica and their hospitality. They have treated me like royalty. I was joking with someone earlier that they even left a little mint on my pillow. So I'm joking, but thank you for having me. Turn in your copies of God's Word this morning to Haggai chapter 1. Habakkuk, Zephaniah, Haggai. This is part of the Old Testament that's somewhat neglected. And as you're turning there, I want to set the context for us this morning. The Lord had judged his peoples. He had exiled them in Babylon because of their idolatry. The scriptures speak of the abominations that they had committed, prostituting themselves to the pagan nations. And so God had in his love, and I want you to understand that this morning, in his love, in his grace, disciplined his son. And so Haggai now writes, this is a post-exilic book after the captivity. God had raised up a pagan leader, a pagan king by the name of Cyrus, who conquered Babylon and freed his people. And the reason the scripture specifies as to why God frees his people from captivity is so that central, or excuse me, worship would become central again. The temple had been destroyed, and it's laying now in ruins, and that's where we're going to pick up in our reading. And let's do that. Let's start by reading God's Word, and we're going to read the entire chapter this morning. Haggai chapter 1, and we'll read verses 1 through 15. Please give attention now as I read God's holy Word. In the second year of Darius the king, in the sixth month, on the first day of the month, the word of the Lord came by the hand of Haggai, the prophet, to Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, governor of Judah, and to Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest. Thus says the Lord of hosts, These people say, The time has not yet come to rebuild the house of the Lord. Then the word of the Lord came by the hand of Haggai the prophet. Is it a time for you yourselves to dwell in your paneled houses while this House lies in ruins. Now, therefore, thus says the Lord of hosts, consider your ways. You have sown much and harvested little. You eat, but you never have enough. You drink, but you never have your fill. You clothe yourselves, but no one is warm. And he who earns wages does so to put them into a bag with holes. Thus says the Lord of hosts, Consider your ways. Go up to the hills and bring wood and build the house 
that I may take pleasure in it, and that I may be glorified, says the Lord. You looked for much, and behold, it came to little. And when you brought it home, I blew it away. Why, declares the Lord of hosts, because of my house that lies in ruins, while each of you busies himself with his own house. Therefore, the heavens above you have withheld the dew, and the earth has withheld its produce. And I have called for a drought on the land and on the hills, and the hills on the grain, the new wine, the oil, on what the ground brings forth, on man and beast, and on, and on all their labors. Then Zerubbabel the son of Shealtiel, and Joshua the son of Jehozadak, the high priest, with all the remnant of the people, obeyed the voice of the Lord their God. And the words of Haggai the prophet, as the Lord their God had sent him. And the people feared the Lord. Then Haggai, the messenger of the Lord, spoke to the people with the Lord's message. I am with you, declares the Lord. And the Lord stirred up the spirit of Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, governor of Judah, and the spirit of Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest, and the spirit of all the remnant of the people. And they came and worked on the house of the Lord of hosts, their God. On the 24th day of the month, in the sixth month, in the second year of Darius the king. Amen. May God add his blessing to the reading of his holy word. Let's go to the Lord now in prayer. Oh God, we are utterly dependent upon you. We know that the scripture teaches that spiritual things are spiritually discerned. So we need your help now, Holy Spirit, to open our eyes to see wonderful things from your law today. And we pray that your message would go forth in power, that Christ would be exalted and lifted up, and that your people would be encouraged. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Well, the text is rich with details. I love all of the specificity that Haggai gives us. And that this lends realism to the text. Science is slowly catching up with the Bible. We have more and more archaeological discoveries, and the scientists who have had disdain for the Scripture will then discover something that the Scripture has been teaching all along. And this is what we have here, the who the what, the why. Notice King Darius, the the king in the sixth month on the first day of the month. Well, I mentioned earlier to you that it was Cyrus that was raised up by God to deliver his people. And yet here the text records Darius. Darius is the successor. He's the son of Cyrus. And Cyrus made it very clear to his son, this is what you are to do. We have the messenger, the prophet Haggai. Notice Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, governor of Judah. And then we have Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest. Here we have the elders 
in the community, this message from God to his church under age. And what is God telling his people? The message of God to his people. Consider your ways. And this is repeated twice. And I want us to look at this admonition this morning under two headings. Consider your ways. Number one, the way of want. The way of want. And number two, the way of worship. The message begins, thus says the Lord of hosts. This phrase is repeated over 14 times through the book of Haggai. We'll look at chapter 2 tonight. You have that to look forward to. So we'll conclude Haggai today. And this message is authoritative because, notice the phrase, the Lord of hosts. What does your mind think of when you think of the Lord of hosts? My mind went to Isaiah 6, where you have Isaiah who has this vision of the throne room of God, and you have these angelic beings that can't help and stop but say, holy, holy, holy is the Lord Almighty, the Lord of hosts. I love this quote from Herman Bavink. And he calls the Lord of hosts, this is a quote from him, the king in the fullness of his glory, who, surrounded by regimented host of angels, governs the whole world as almighty, and in his temple receives the honor and acclamation of all his creatures. This is our God, the Lord of hosts. And this is how he's presenting himself to his people. It's authoritative. And we have these interesting words in verse 2. The next verse records then, excuse me, look at verse 1. So this message coming to the elders of the church, verse 2, thus says the Lord of hosts, these people say, isn't that interesting? It's almost like my wife and I, when our children are misbehaving, and I'm like, these are your children. And this is the word these. It's so impersonal. This demonstrative pronoun, it's pointing to something. And it's almost as if we are allowed into the dialogue of the Trinity, this inter-Trinitarian dialogue. Why, why is he saying this? We haven't gotten to the message yet. These people say the time has not yet come to rebuild the house of the Lord. There's a subtext here. The people are making excuses. They started well. They're delivered from Babylon. They come back home to Jerusalem. And within that first year, they start rebuilding the temple. But something happens. They stop. We don't know if it's based on politics in the area, if they're being attacked, why did they stop? This was the express command of God that the reason they're being allowed out of Babylon and freed is so that the temple might be rebuilt. And we'll talk a little bit more about this tonight, 
But you can only imagine the enormous task that lay before them. The temple of Solomon was the seventh wonder of the world. You had people from all over the world literally coming to see the temple of God. And here it lays before them in ruins. The point is they, they stop. They pursue their own pleasure, their own desires, this way of want. And God continues his message in verses 3 and 4. Then the word of the Lord came by the hand of Haggai the prophet. Is it a time for you yourselves to dwell in your paneled houses while this house lies in ruins? There's a play on words here. God has a sense of humor. His house lies in ruins, and yet what does the prophet say? What are they doing? They're living in paneled houses. Well, interestingly, the temple would have been built in its heyday with the wood, acacia wood, and it would have been lined with panel. It was beautiful on the inside. Well, they're neglecting the house of God, but yet here they're erecting their own homes. They're living in luxury. And God comes to them and says, really, is it a time? Is it you to focus on your own pleasures and your own desires and neglect my house? Consider your ways. The prophet brings message from God. And if we were to modernize that today, we might quote from the great theologian, Dr. Phil, how's that working for you? It's not working very well. The definition of futility here in this passage You work hard, but you have little to show for it. You eat and drink, but you're never satisfied. You have clothes, but you're never worn. And this last phrase is so rich. Your wealth is being drained away. And the analogy that the Lord uses is that of a bag with holes in it. They're putting whatever's most precious to them in this bag and yet it's falling out the bottom. How's that working out for you? Consider your ways. And wouldn't we think, right, and we could be so hard on the church under age, we could be so hard on the disciples and read the text and think, what, why, what are you missing? What's wrong with you? They had been in captivity for 70 years. And here they're released, and they immediately start going back to their former ways. It's easy for us to judge them, but isn't that you and I? So often, God has worked with us, not just salvifically, but in our sanctification and delivering us time after time after time. And we still doubt we still gravitate back toward our own ways. And God is calling us today to consider our ways. God hasn't given up on his people. There is grace here. He sends his prophet to the people to call them to repentance. Verse 9, you looked for much, 
and behold, it came to little. And when you brought it home, I blew it away. Why? Because of my house that lies in ruins. While each of you busies himself with his own house. Are you busy this morning with your own house? Are you pursuing your own pleasure? Or are you pursuing the Lord of hosts and his house? This final message in verse 8, he commands, Go up to the hills and bring wood and build the house that I might take or I may take pleasure in it that I may be glorified, says the Lord. Forsake your own way, is what God is telling the people. Pursue me. Seek first the kingdom of heaven and his righteousness. And all of these things will be added to you. The way of want will leave you wanting. Number two, the way of worship. Verse 12. Then Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, and Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest, with all the remnant of the people, listen to this, obeyed the voice of the Lord. How marvelous is this? The Lord was gracious to send his word through his prophet, and they respond. Notice the last sentence in verse 12. And the people feared the Lord. Is this, is this an afterthought? We, they are obedient, but why is it that they responded? Why is it that they're obedient? Well, let's look at the biblical, biblical definition of fear. What does it mean? Well, what it's not is it's not something that makes you afraid. The biblical definition of fear is I'm not cowering over in a corner fearing retribution. That's not the biblical definition. Let me read for you, and this almost is counterintuitive, but fear is a part of the new covenant, and I'll explain that. And I want you to hear this from Exodus chapter 20, verses 18 and 20. Now, when all the people saw the thunder and the flashes of lightning and the sound of the trumpet and the mountain smoking, the people were afraid and trembled, and they stood far off and said to Moses, You speak to us, and we will listen, but do not let God speak to us. This is what I want you to hear. Moses said to the people, do not fear, for God has come to test you, that the fear of him may be before you, that you may not sin. We have this contrast between being afraid of God and fearing God. Those are not the same things. Those who have a proper fear of God will not be afraid of him. Where do we see this in the new covenant? Jeremiah 33, our classic text for the new covenant. Covenant. Listen to these words from Jeremiah. He promises... I will cleanse them from all the guilt of their sin against me. And I will forgive all the guilt of their sin and rebellion against me. And this city 
shall be to me a name of joy, a praise, and a glory before all the nations of the earth. Who shall hear of all the good that I do for them? They shall fear and tremble because of all the good and all the prosperity I provide for it. This is not a fear of punishment. It's just the opposite. Did you hear those adjectives? Cleanse them from guilt. Forgive them and do great good for them. This is the promise in the new covenant. God will draw us close to himself. We have nothing to fear. Now, let me caveat that and say this morning, if you are in rebellion to God, then yes, you should fear. Christ both mediates his grace and his punishment. But for you who are in Christ this morning, you have nothing to fear. Our motivation should be love for God. That's what it means to fear. I was a rebellious young man growing up. When I was 18 years old, I thought it'd be fun to sneak out of the house and go joyriding with my friends. And I'll never forget, one morning early, I think it was 2 a.m., to my horror, we're coming down the road and I see my dad walking down the street, looking for me. My father was a Baptist pastor for 40 years. He's with Jesus now. But he took me aside that early morning as we sat out on our porch. And he looked at me in the eye and he said, I cannot continue to be a pastor if you are going to rebel. And because of the great love and respect that I have and had for my father, I repented. Praise God. And this is what we see here. It's the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the great love that we have for him because of his great sacrifice. That our response to consider your ways should be obedience. And it leads to worship. This is the reverent awe of the gospel. You know this, but I want to remind you, obedience is an act of worship. Think about Paul's admonition to the church in Rome. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, to present yourself as living sacrifices. I'm an older guy. I tell lots of dad jokes. The problem with the living sacrifice, you know this, that sacrifice keeps crawling off the altar. And that's where you and I live, isn't it? This is something that we do daily. But obedience, an act of obedience, is our worship to God. Jesus said, if you love me, keep my commandments. Well, we notice in the text, their response, they got busy. Verses 14 and 15. They began to rebuild. Now, we might want to nitpick and say, well, it took you, what, three weeks, right, for you to obey? Well, put that in context, though. Context, it took 46 years to rebuild the temple. They responded. They got busy. And I I love this. The Lord responds as well. Verse 13. Then Haggai, the messenger of the Lord, spoke to the people with the Lord's message. Listen to this. I am with you declares the Lord. This is impossible. 
There's no way we can do this. But God in his grace comes to his people and says, I am with you. He gives them his spirit. What did the temple symbolize? The presence of God. This was the center of their universe. They had been without the public worship of God for 70 years. I want you to just let that sink in for a moment. We are so blessed. You and I, we're here gathered together today under the name of Christ. We have the freedom in this country to worship. And yet we take that for granted. What a privilege. The church symbolizing God's presence with his people. Listen to this from Leviticus 26. This is the promise of God. I will make my dwelling among you, and my soul shall not abhor you. And I will walk among you and will be your God, and you shall be my people. God does not abhor you. I know who I am. I know my heart. And yet because of Christ and his righteousness, who has clothed me and you who are professing Christ, God does not abhor you. He poured out his wrath, his full wrath, that cup that was full of God's wrath, and Jesus drank that cup to its dregs. God's punishment was upon Christ. He does not abhor us. And listen to this, and I will walk among you. My mind goes back to the garden when God walked with Adam and Eve in the cool of the day. And with Christ, we have redemption. We have paradise restored. And we have fellowship with Christ. This is the covenant promise of God. Worship is central. I want to call you again to search your hearts. Is this where you're living today? Are you living for your own pleasure? Are you pursuing the way of want? Or are you pursuing Christ and the way of worship? Let's pray. Father, this is convicting in so many ways, but we need to hear this word, that you are preeminent, that you are central. And Father, may that be our heart's desire to live a life of sacrifice and of worship to you. Not just when we come to to worship corporately, but may that be a lifestyle, a way of life for each of us. And may that joy that you have filled within us be like a cup that overflows so that when we get bumped, Father, they get wet with the Lord Jesus. We pray all of this now in your name. Amen.